Welcome to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast with your host, Steve Abramowitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Mill Creek View newspaper. Welcome back to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast. We are focusing on the volunteer state and our nation today with always an interesting person making a positive change in our community. This time, special guest, Christian Irvin. But first, for more information about the Mill Creek View podcast, visit us anywhere you get your podcasts and socials at Mill Creek View, Tennessee. While you're there, please subscribe. With Columbia, Tennessee-based EnergizeHealth.com, you lose fat fast, simply and naturally, without restrictive exercise or cardboard, dry, tasteless food. Revolutionize your health with this proprietary 88-day science from John and Chelsea Jubilee. People report getting off medications and reversing ailments. Energy, mental clarity, and alertness go through the roof. Look and feel many years younger and oftentimes unrecognizable. I know. I'm an alumnus and lost 70 pounds of fat with John and Chelsea and wouldn't have energy to do three shows a week without it. Hit the link in show notes for your free consultation and discount. Money back guarantee so you have nothing to lose but unhealthy fat. Energized health. And welcome to our People in the News episode where I interview people who are making an impact and are lovers of truth. Today we are talking with Christian Irvin. Semper Grati Project is a 501c3 providing solutions for the biggest challenges faced by veterans, improving quality of life, and creating opportunities for individuals and their families for generations. Christian Irvin originally joined the Air Force to be a pilot, but was the only pilot trainee who didn't like flying, so he left and went to work in operations management on the civilian side. Then, when his best friend lost his leg in Fallujah, Iraq, he enlisted in the Army and became a Special Forces soldier. After developments, after deployments to Afghanistan, Iraq, and a couple other places, he went to work for the CIA. After finishing two master's degrees in business from Indiana University, he has founded several businesses, including Semper Grati, a nonprofit focused on helping fellow Special Operations veterans and veterans in general. Christian, hi, how are you today? I'm pretty good. Thank you for having me on, Steve. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for coming on, sir. We really appreciate you taking the time. Um, Before we get into all the details about you and what you're into right now, tell us about your best friend, Chad, the Marine that lost his leg in Iraq. Yeah, uh, we were best friends in college, and uh, he ended up enlisting in the Marine Corps uh, while we were still in school and, of course, got deployed uh, in the early 2000s. And it was 2006 uh, when his sister called me. Um, like I said, I was you know, working that civilian operations management job, and uh, I sort of had this you know recollection and, and uh, reconciliation of missed opportunities to contact and communicate, and realized uh, even though it was a very unfortunate event, I, I still felt lucky that Chad was still alive. Um, and then I, you know, as as we do a lot of times, sort of reflected inwardly and realized I was still, you know, capable um, in that age bracket where I could easily contribute. And it was 2006, so virtually the middle of the war. Um, And after some reflection, I was galvanized toward the career pivot, much to the confusion of some of my family members, um, galvanized toward the career pivot of getting back into the service. And that was 2006. He also left a, a Fortune 50 company for the Air Force. That must before have been the Army. Oh, for the Army. For the Army. So that must have made your Air Force buddies not too happy. Um, what did you have against flying and big companies? <laughs> well, with with flying, I usually sum it up this way: it's 
very attractive and appealing when you're watching the jet fly. When you're flying the jet, you're essentially strapped into a, a flying desk, right? And so some of that uh, disillusioned me a little bit, uh, but primarily I had a talk with our wing commander who was an F-16 pilot, a very accomplished F-16 pilot. And he was, to his credit, very honest and very frank and said, hey, I haven't flown a combat mission. And to me, that was sort of a, a wake up um, or come to Jesus moment, if you will, realizing that I was potentially embarking down a career path uh, where I might not go to combat. And of course, I was, you know, in my early 20s at the time. And that was the whole point of joining. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but it's an easy Air Force and some guys go to combat. Big guys or gals go to combat. Some don't. Um, but I had an opportunity to to part ways amicably. I wasn't too far into my career with the Air Force. And so I did that and then uh, was very fortunate, uh, started working a, a good job, especially for someone my age at the time. And that that unfortunate event with my best friend, um, you know, created that opportunity for for the reflection and the, the career change. And you had a one-year-old at the time or did that come later too? Oh, that later? was later. That was later. My, my wife uh, surprised me mid-deployment one time with an ultrasound picture in snail mail. So <laughs> she was probably waiting for weeks until I, you know, made that frantic call one day, just, uh, you know, having conversations without alluding to the idea that she'd already knew, known what she'd known and was, was just patiently waiting for me to open an envelope one day. And some of those places that you have been known to be in didn't exactly have U.S. mail uh, next day delivery. You, you were in some, yeah, okay. Correct, very austere environments, we'll put it that way. <laughs> All right, now to make that decision that we just discussed, you interviewed some former Navy SEALs and some Army Green Beret veterans. They must have told you the Army was the place for you. More or less. I mean, the, the SEALs don't say that, but the, uh, <laughs> right. the description of training and sort of the career pipeline and you know the the opportunities encountered overseas the green beret pipeline um seemed a bit more and i don't want to slight any service uh i've got a lot of seal friends and a great respect for seals but the green beret pipeline seemed uh while also physically challenging was a bit more academic and that was that was appealing to me i was i was going to use uh you know the, the broad and the brains um you know if if i could Okay. And so being college educated, former Air Force officer, you enlisted in the Army Medical Specialty A team, not just your average run of the mill medic. Correct. Yeah. On, on an A team, there are various career specialties. So, so to break it down for the audience that might not be sort of in the know here, uh, an operational detachment alpha is the like frontline tactical element of a Army Special Forces unit uh, or Green Beret unit. There's also a B team, which is typically a more support role. But however, whether you're on an A team or a B team, there are specialties within a team. And one of those specialties, and probably the most academically challenging specialty is medicine, trauma medic. Um, and the A team Delta is the highest trained, uh, most highly trained trauma medic in any military anywhere in the world. Yeah, that's the Army's 18D course. A Special Forces selectee is the highest trained medic in the world. And that's who I'm talking to right now, right? I'm not the only one. Uh, that's, that's a sound overly modest. There are other 18 deltas, but but yes, yeah. you're accurate. Okay, all right. And you stitch up my forehead after I uh, got a scope. I did. Bite, so I appreciate it. Yeah, I've, I've been very proud of application of medical skills there. Field medic, but 18D. So that's serious stuff. All right, maybe they'll even go away. Um, okay, and so you left uh, active duty in 2015. 
I'm sure there's a long storied history and all that time that we couldn't get into because uh, we're not allowed to, but let's talk about what you're up to now. So you are working with veterans um, as they uh, graduate from their service uh, after probably many, many years, and then now have to live a nice long life afterwards in a civilian world and economy and country, wherever that may be. What are the challenges faced by veterans after they leave the service? So Steve, some of the most pronounced challenges um, are often unforeseen, right? So when someone exits service, they expect that Veterans Affairs is going to, you know, responsibly handle them as they as they matriculate in the civilian society. Uh, one of the the large focuses and subsequently large failures there is is medical care through the VA the VA hospital system. Um, the primary issue that a lot of our, our veterans bump into or, or are faced with is the recognition uh, and then a, a appropriate care for injuries and ailments sustained while in active service. And so it is, you know, congressionally mandated uh, that the VA uh, see to the needs uh, of its veteran population um, specifically for things that were documented in service or injuries or exposures. You know, you hear a lot about the burn pit um, exposure and, and all the ailments that can come with that. But it's their duty to render care uh, for appropriately qualified folks. And one of the big challenges is the system is possibly deliberately uh, very um, obfuscated to where the average Joe, if you will, or Jane, um, trying to achieve a VA rating or matriculate into that VA hospital system and seek care for things uh, related to service is going to have a, a lot of difficulty, um, you know, achieving that rating. And congressional mandate says it's not supposed to be a legalistic um, or or a, a confrontational environment when a veteran seeks those uh, those remedies, but it is exactly the opposite. Um, most of the time, you, you'll see a lot of law firms online and on television offering to help veterans, you know, achieve um, some progress with the VA or with their VA rating. Well, and there's a reason that it's a law firm doing it because it is so confusing and so intimidating that it's virtually, I won't say virtually impossible, it's extremely challenging for the individual veteran to do that. So as I got into the National Guard after active duty, I had a lot of folks uh, who I, with whom I'd served continue to contact me and say, hey, how do I work this VA thing? You know, you were the medic, this is a medical issue, right? You must know how, and I said, I have no idea how. Uh, you know, I'm a trained army medic, I don't know anything about the the you know, the big machine that is the VA, but ultimately, Steve, I, I sort of went to work and focused on learning that, right? And it almost it requires like an associate's degree in VA regulatory material. Um, now, it is very achievable, but it is extremely difficult uh, to sort of go it alone. And ultimately, what what we came to was uh, the opportunity or, or the possibility of sort of tapping the generosity of Americans uh, to support the veteran community in a very creative way, um, the the best way to sort of uh, soup to nuts this this part of the equation, this line of effort along Separate Project, is to look at the investment required for like a medical consultation or administrative consultation to help you know say you were the veteran to help you get through the VA process and have your injuries recognized and rated by the VA. Now that there's a cost to that. But what it ultimately results in is a compensation pension payment tax-free every month for the rest of your life. 
And so it's very easy to look at the, the input, the capital input, and see a, a surprisingly large benefit come out of that, especially if we catch someone as they first exit service, you know, in their 30s or maybe their early 40s. It's really neat. Yeah, it would be. And it's hard to imagine that they are expected to do that. You know, they were trained to run into bullets, you know, and save lives and, and put down combat situations and then not learn bureaucratic uh, forms and dot the I's and cross the T's. And now all of a sudden they're expected to for their own health. That's rough. Yeah. And so the Department of Veteran Affairs, obviously being a big government bureaucracy and a labyrinth of all the things that we complain about on the show on a regular basis, that isn't their number one resource to get those opportunities done. And like you said, see that there's a benefit that they can have for the rest of their lives, tax-free income, if they don't have somebody like you there to work for it. So tell us about the name, Semper Grati Project. Um, how does SGP differentiate from other veterans-oriented nonprofits? And where'd you get the name? So there's a lot of Latin thrown around, especially in special operations groups. And of course, any of the Marines listening will recognize Semper from, you know, Semper Fidelius, always faithful, Semper Grati, always thankful. And so it, it's more of uh, an homage to, you know, the, the very, the long history of support uh, from the civilian populace that the U.S. military and the U.S. military veterans have seen. Um, and that's something we wanted to, again, tap into for the purpose of, of, you know, seeking these remedies for veterans, right? Um, the, the VA ratings are, are not the only line of effort, but they are a primary. Um, and so that's sort of the, um, I guess, the the origin uh, behind the name there. But, you know, we, we thought it was appropriate and, and drove forward with that. Okay, makes sense. Um, and so Semper, Semper Grati was founded in Tennessee, and you have a strong board of directors. Uh, tell us about those folks and why here, why Tennessee? Well, to, to go in reverse order, um, here, because this is where we are, right? And so, you know, the network, uh, and of course, this part of the country is very supportive to the cause, very culturally aligned, if you will. Um, but we were here and we thought, hey, if, if this is where, if we're going to meet with any success, it's it's going to start here, right? Uh, if we can't meet with success here, then let's just, you know, write this thing off and uh, and we'll tell stories about it later. But we, we have uh, met some very, you know, fantastic people um, and, and great opportunities to sort of get the word out, get to support you being an example of one of them. Thank you. Um, and then as far as our board of directors, uh, just it's interesting how these things come together. And maybe some of the other folks who have started nonprofits or even started for-profit companies can uh, can identify you know, opportunities and, and sort of happenstances that were hugely beneficial. But there was one one Marine uh, whom we were working with to support him and his you know quest with the VA, uh, and the VA just flat out denied everything, even though he had tons of documentation from his time overseas. And you know we could go down, I could we could spend a half hour just talking about some of these cases. It'll it'll blow your mind what the VA tries to get away with in denying uh, in denying veterans their benefits. But he was he was a senior uh, homeland security uh, agent, um, and one of the people with whom he worked. Uh, was was an attorney and her father had been severely mistreated by the VA uh, in the Vietnam era and ended up you know passing away due to the the lack of treatment um and to say that she had a bone to pick with the VA would be an understatement um uh, but she also had a heart to help veterans and so she came on board um you know very very supportive very sort of uh 
open checkbook in a human capital sense. Uh, you know, however I can help was her attitude. And she's been extremely helpful. Uh, but clearly, uh, someone like that, someone who's, uh, you know, an experienced accomplished attorney uh, is an asset to have on any um, but especially with her background and her experience. Uh, and then because so much of what we do does delve into the medical space, I mean, we have to reach into sort of the, the network for medical consulting services from time to time. Um, one, of our, one of our good friends, Dr. Eric Brown, who's a physician on the East Coast, uh, but also very entrepreneurial in nature, uh, was all too happy to, to jump on board and, and help out. And then um, our co-founder, Mike Stainbrook, uh, primarily an investment banker here locally. Um, of, of course, you know, there's a thousand things I could say about how helpful he's been and, and how instrumental. But one of the things we wanted to sort of keep in mind as we drove the Semper Grati project was not lose sight of, you know, sort of the um, the judicious use of funds, right? Like as, as a, a nonprofit grows from time to time, sometimes you'll see these wild reports, you know, of a, a nonprofit that's been around 10 or 15 years and you're like their operations budget is 60%, you know, mm -hmm. This is like a self-licking ice cream cone here. What, what does your money go to when you give to them? Um, and so as long as we could go down these lines of effort um, with a, uh, a demonstrable ROI and sort of some KPIs to pin it to, I guess ROG, return on giving, might, might be a, a better term. Um, but as long as we could have like a, you know, some goals and some quarterlies that we could reflect on, again, as if it were a for-profit, um, and continue to go back to the board, but mostly go back to the donors and say, hey, look, this is as legit as we said it was when you donated. Um, in fact, our numbers are even better than our goals were. Uh, you know, thanks for your support. Are you are you interested in continuing support? Uh, we felt we get a, a very strong, um, a, a very strong, um, you know, continued engagement with, with some of those folks. And then nice. our last board member uh, is, is a good friend of mine, um, but also an extremely re resourceful um, individual uh he was also a green beret as chad wiley and he has um a knack for um uh, like many green berets do networking but i would say in, in extremis um you know if, if we needed uh you know to achieve a particular objective for a fundraiser say in phoenix and we needed to do it yesterday um he's he's one of the folks i would you know we would lean on hard and i'd, I'd bet dollars to pesos he'd be able to get it done is that a different Chad than the friend that got you into the? Correct. A different Chad. I've okay, got a lot of Chad. Chads in my life. I guess. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, off the website, it says improving the quality of life for veterans who have sacrificed the most investing in heroes, not only need, but deserve. So what do you use the donations for specifically, I guess? So this is one of the things that sort of differentiates, I think, some Grady project um, from some other organizations, uh, you know, fantastic organizations they may be, but um, differentiates us because we are focused on those who might be described as like the top 5% of performers in the, in the military, right? Like the special operations community, you know, there's a, there's a, obviously a physical, uh, you know, component there, but also there's typically a, a pretty thorough screening for like psychological, endurance and resiliency there. Um, of course, typically you have to have higher than average test scores to enter into one of these career fields. And so when we leverage donations to benefit a veteran, a lot of times it's going to someone who we can say with a, um, with a reliable degree of confidence is going to 
succeed on the civilian side. Um, and what we're trying to achieve is the baseline of benefits, which they're due, not you know something special or above and beyond. We're just trying to make sure that they get what they're, again, legally entitled to through through congressional mandate of, of the VA so they can best um, you know outfit themselves and their families to succeed. And what happens, Steve, is a lot of times if, if you have, um, say you have an individual who, you know, did, did several deployments and, you know, didn't think much about making a VA claim, but they've been out for two years and now they can't bend over and put their socks on in the morning and they're 35 years old. So clearly there's some, there's some physical trauma there that hasn't been remedied. According to the Special Operations Association, I think it's 13 and a half years, uh, a special operations veteran will go without reporting an injury unless it's a traumatic injury like an amputation or gunshot. And so what happens then is, you know, the VA has the opportunity to wash their hands and say, hey, you know, the numbness in your legs at the age of 35 is is something else. It's it's not, you know, uh, eight deployments and, and 15 years in service. Well, of course, we know that's not true. And, but what the veteran can realize if, if they wind up with you know, like 100% uh, permanent and total disability rating is like 1.4, or 1.6 million over their lifetime. And Clearly, that number in itself is is impressive, um, and it's it you know does credit to what Congress set up in in the VA system or how it's supposed to operate to benefit veterans who endure those things. But when we think about it, enabling a veteran in that way creates a generational shift for their family. So if you have a guy or gal you know who might be raising four kids and has a spouse at home, providing that income over the lifetime is is going to be obviously enabling uh in the short term and the long term either better schools uh you know better better educational opportunities for the kids um for them the opportunity to start a business uh, might be facilitated through those benefits and so what we're saying and, and kind of what we're driving on is again taking that top five percent of folks um and saying you, know, you have the highest statistical likelihood of success if we can enable you and, and that's what we're trying to do here. And then that's how we get into the career services component of the Semper Grady project. And of course, the mental health component too. Yeah, I want to talk about the companies that they find when they start uh, looking for work. But uh, I, I remember during the Obama years, uh, you know, it was quite the scandal about long lines and, and deaths waiting on the VA. Is the VA a broken system? The, if someone asked me once how to fix the VA, I, I said, uh, you know, basically take the flag down and then dump gasoline all over it and then just start from scratch. <laughs> but realistically, I think there'd be a huge opportunity if you could privatize some component of the VA, uh, because with privatization, you get accountability. Um, and I think we all know in a lot of government jobs, you know, it's impossible to get fired. Uh, and really what you need, because you have some good people in the VA, you absolutely have some some good, well-meaning people in the VA, and the issue is they're a tiny minority. Um, and I think, that I would guess that over decades, it has shifted from a majority to a minority. And then, of course, you have a lot of people who are very happy to punch the clock, whether, how, whether they're lending benefit or doing their jobs correctly, it's immaterial. They're getting paid, and it's impossible to get fired. And so um, there is certainly some opportunity to start over with the VA. But, you know, in terms of efficiencies and costs, um, let alone customer service, yeah, I think there would be a huge benefit to privatizing. You know, the VA is the largest healthcare company in the world. Um, their, their comp and pension uh, budget this year is $185 billion. 
their their uh, spends this year are 155 billion. And so the idea that they're strapped for cash and they're denying veterans benefits because of some budgetary issue is completely non sequitur. Uh, they're, they're overfunded. Of course, those funds can get reallocated at the end of the fiscal year. Uh, and I think there are some folks in Congress that are very happy to get their hands on those funds and reallocate them uh, to, to the programs that they want it to go to. But, um, you know, to be a little more succinct, yes, it's a huge issue. And there is opportunity to change it, but it, it would take literally an act of Congress. And it, it was the model of Obamacare. You know, I always figured it would end up like health care from the DMV. That's what Kaiser's HMO was, um, spreading the care around between poor people and writing off the cost to Medicare or what I call taxpayers. Um, is there a better way? Are you, are you Have you found a better way for these guys and gals? In terms of... Uh, the areas that we touch, yeah, I mean that you know the VA has a duty of care and a, a, not not just physical you know uh, healthcare, but a duty of care in processing claims. Um, they're clearly deficient in that category. Uh, we have tons of anecdotals on how they're deliberately deficient in that category in their regard for veterans. Um, but how we approach things, uh, you know, with a very you know judicious, methodical. Uh, proven approach to, you know, consultative uh, efforts and gains on behalf of the veteran um, it is, you know, seems to be working. Um, and it is, a, it's in, in abidance or abiding with the VA's regulation. There's nothing that's, you know, going around the lines or anything like that. It's just, uh, we're very, very thorough when we get to work with a veteran uh, because their claims matter. And I, I was talking with a gentleman the other day and, you know, he, texted me, you know, late at night or something like that. And I said, hey, everyone's claims are the most important claims to us. Uh, and that doesn't really make sense. You can't have, a, you know, 100 claims all be the most important. But, you know, that's the attitude you have to have when you engage because you're 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 being trusted. Uh, there's a trust between the veteran and yourself, but also the veteran's family uh, implied there. Uh, it's a huge responsibility, but it's, it's certainly one that, that we take seriously. Our donors take seriously. And as we continue to grow and build the Gratty project, um, it's it's not going to change. Okay, so I pulled out some stats here. Uh, back in twenty oh right. one, I know you're a stat guy. Uh, there were sadly twenty nine thousand five hundred adults committed suicide in the United States. Uh, fast forward to twenty nineteen, which was the last numbers I could find, forty five thousand five hundred killed themselves. Obviously, explosive growth on that. Veterans ages 55 to 74 were the largest population subgroup. They accounted for 38.6% of veteran suicide deaths in 2019. That's 6,200 guys and gals. Um, it was a record 6,800 in 2017-18. Um, what's changed for these folks? What do you think? I, I don't know, Steve. Um, it's it's tragic. I think the the real issue here, and it's easy to to go back to this, um, you know, argumentative well, but the, the VA is not doing uh, what it should be doing. Um, there's plenty of funding in place. I do know um, the way recently talked to a veteran um, who was working through the VA and their wait uh, for mental health counseling was 60 days, even on the active duty side, um, depending on, on what installation you're at, it might be a 30 day wait. Um, so Semper Grati Project uh, had the, the good fortune of partnering with Veribus Life 
which is a peer-to-peer uh, counseling entity um, to do, you know, facilitate veterans in, in a much shorter time frame um, getting mental health counseling, either from a licensed psychologist or a certified counselor. And the, the really neat thing about this, Steve, is everyone that works there is a veteran, and most of them are combat veterans, and even some of them are special operations combat veterans. And so there's immediate rapport and immediate trust there that, you know, the VA just can't achieve at scale, just because there's not that many special operations veterans, not that many combat veterans who are licensed in counseling or clinical psychology. So I think the opportunity that we have here is really special. You know, the the numbers are staggering. It's it's There's a visceral response there if, if you actually think through that. Um, but, you know, we can only do what we can do, uh, in, inside Semper Grati project. And I think we have a, a really good start to, uh, positively affecting the lives of, of those, you know, who we can encounter and, and are in that sort of, uh, inflection point in their life mentally, uh, and psychologically, we could have, have a very positive impact, a life-changing impact, of course. Yeah. And just providing them hope to, to reintegrate into society with a good job that can provide for their children and families to take away the, the despondency, the hopelessness that if you had to go to the VA and wait in line, the, that you would probably feel. So it's amazing. You know, the Veterans Compact Act of 2020 was signed into law by President Trump uh, in December 5th, 2020, enables VA to implement programs, policies, and reports related to transitioning service members, suicide prevention, and crisis services mental health education and treatment and improvement of services for women veterans specific to emergency suicide care. This act will strengthen coordination of care between VCL and the Office of Community Care for furnishing emergent care to an eligible individual at a medical facility of the department, pay for emergent suicide care provided to an eligible individual at a non-department facility, and reimburse an eligible individual to emerge emergent suicide care provided to the eligible individual at a non-department facility. So I'm wondering, does your charity play right into that to provide that care that the Veterans Association or Veterans Administration cannot? We are pursuing uh, some some grant opportunities along those lines. It's a very, very keen insight. Uh, you know, that sort of uh, win would, would greatly enhance our capability in that realm. And, uh, there's no sort of cap uh, you know, that we've set uh, either either myself or the board on you know how far we're willing to expand in the mental health uh, you know side of in terms of our three lines of effort. I found it interesting too. There was a, a nearly thirteen percent one year rate decrease for female veterans, which represent the largest rate decrease for women's veterans in seventeen years. Um, that that was for suicides. Do you find something unique happening with the females? Are they getting more veterans administration attention? Is there something else out there? Are they just tougher? <laughs> Not, no, that's that isn't even funny. What what do you think it would be that would account for such a large decrease? You know, I think, and this is this is just me speaking from the experience of the veterans with whom we've worked in these things, I think there is a, uh, a desire or a, a, a de devoted effort, you know, a, a dedicated um, effort to uh, ensure that, especially on, this, on the mental health side, um, that care is rendered to uh, the female population. Um, 
and just, I mean, I'll, I'll be frank. I don't think it briefs well to America if, especially in the, the, you know, culture that we're in now, if you say, Hey, we neglected the females of the population, right? Like that's, that's pretty indefensible. If you have to go in front of Congress, you know, uh, on behalf of the VA and say, our bad. Yeah, we missed this one. Um, but I, I did read an interesting stats uh, going through some of the VA's literature, and it said if a veteran has sought mental health care from the VA within the last year, they're statistically more likely to take their own life in the 12 months following. Hmm. And you can unpack that a little bit to say, well, if someone has gone to the VA for care, clearly there's something going on there. So sure maybe maybe they're, they'd be more uh more likely to you know make that decision the other side of it is what the heck is the va doing if they're letting these folks walk out and then ultimately make that decision like the the follow-up is almost automatable this is where we talk about privatizing certain aspects of the va like on the on the you know the civilian side of any you know for-profit entity there are plenty of automated AI powered apps that can text you every day and say, Hey, Steve, how are you doing? And seem like it's a human on the other end. It's not incredibly expensive. And I'm not saying that's the answer. I'm just saying it'd be very easy to turn something like that on and then very quickly see if there's a measurable result that's positive. The idea that you're more likely to kill yourself if you went to the VA for mental health treatment. I mean, that, that should, you know, <laughs> that should make some people break out in a sweat right now. Well, and, I think I know one of the answers because I have a friend who left private practice to join the VA because he thought he was going to give back. And he left within five years, way earlier than retirement, because they were just asked to, to write prescriptions. They, were, they weren't they were there to do medicine. They were there to put a Band-Aid on, on some serious pain and suffering. And so do you, do you find veterans from any particular war or, or deployment suffer more than others like Iraq vets worse off than Afghanistan or Korea or Vietnam or or maybe the other way around any in particular hardships that you're finding from specific actions so our the Vietnam vets in our community don't have PTSD it hadn't been invented yet <laughs> they, <laughs> they will swear up and down uh and you know just describe you know firefights and engagements and things to a T um and of course they have all the post-traumatic stress uh indicators um the difference is they've they've lived with it uh for 40 years um or 50 years now uh depending if they were early in the vietnam conflict um or gosh even 60 years yeah. um and so the idea that you go to them and say you know hey dad or you know uncle so-and-so or grandpa um you know, I think you've got PTSD. They say, well, I've had it for 60 years, you know, hasn't killed me yet. Um, that That is definitely a, a, a different uh, type of veteran than, you know, the the OIF, OEF, uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom, Operation During Freedom Veteran. And it's not because, you know, the the build of the person is, is so, uh, you know, turned on its head. It's because the... Um, it's more socially acceptable to to have post-traumatic stress now there's so much more understanding about it it's it's sort of prolific in on even on the civilian side in civilian media um and of course when something becomes more exposed like that has more light shine down is, is brought out of the shadows there's understanding that comes there and with understanding comes empathy and it's easier you know to to say hey i i have a problem i need help 
All right. I only got a few minutes left. I just wanted to run some of these stats uh, to get your opinion on them. Um, you know, today in in the press and everywhere else, they're debating gun ownership, calling them weapons of war, and even saying, you know, number one cause of death of kids is guns, but they never mentioned suicide by gun, instead painting it as an armed robbery or something. I found this interesting, tragic and awful, but interesting to talk to you about. So non-veteran U.S. adults, and again, this is suicide, firearms, 47.9% of them, suffocation, 29.6%. That was up 8% in, uh, from 2019 to now, and firearms were down. But with veterans, it's 69.2% use firearms, up 2.7%, only followed by suffocation at 16.9% which was unfortunately also up 2.9%. So obviously firearms, hugely uh, weapon of choice for suicide. Uh, they're trained with what firearms, obviously from boot camp all the way through. It makes sense. They have their service arm. It's all that kind of thing. Any comments on firearms and veteran suicides that in general? Yeah. Um, the, the comment that comes to mind is it's, it's not the tool, it's the act, right? Um, we, we need to look at uh, not how people are finding ways to kill themselves, but why are they trying to kill themselves? Yeah, That's the problem we need to solve. Um, I don't want to you know distill down something and make it more simple, but if my kid keeps stealing chocolate chip cookies off the counter, I don't ban chocolate chip cookies. I try to figure out why he thinks it's okay to steal chocolate chip cookies and address that, right? Um, you know, guns and cookies are a lot different. I'm not saying, you know, whatever, let's, let's leave that where it is. But yeah, the, the real issue is is why are men and women getting to the point in their life, especially with a lot, you know, accomplishing what they accomplished in the military and uh, and growing up. Obviously, the DOD screens people when they come in. Um, you're supposed to be screened for you know psychological abnormalities, things like that, and they're signed off on as as sound and resilient, and yet they're still coming to a point in life where they think the best option for them is to take their own life. That That's the equation that needs to be solved for, not how they decide to do it. Um, the number of you know, if, if someone's determined to die, they're going to find a way to make it happen. We need to figure out why they're determined to die. I agree. And the number of veterans experiencing homelessness in the U.S. was 37,252 in 2022. That's five times the numbers of suicides. So some of them are turning to homelessness to get through the, the their lives. 50% um, of veterans experiencing homelessness in the U.S. are located in regions covered by only 9% of, I don't know what this is, you, I hope you do, continuous of care, C-O-N-T-I-N-U-U-M-S of care. I think it's a VA um, uh, program. Uh, so do you run into a lot of the homeless situations uh, before it's too late for them and then try to turn them around into, into getting jobs and off the streets as well. No. And that's, that's certainly a noble pursuit, but with who we're focused on um, and, and who we're organically bringing, you know, into, into the fold to receive benefits uh, on behalf of our donors. Um, most of those folks, again, are, are a, a little more, um, Again, men mentally resilient, I guess, uh, you know, because part of that resiliency is in the training and special operations and even in the combat arms fields, uh, the combat Marines and uh, Army infantry folks. Um, and uh, again, that's a that's a fantastic pursuit to help those homeless uh, veterans. But uh, it's just not something that we're touching on 
um, you know, with our with the demographic that we're going after. Uh, just out of curiosity, since you work with the top five percent of special forces only, is there a very small amount of those folks that end up homelessness in that homeless statistic, or are they just as many? Because they're yeah, it's 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 very uncommon. And and just to correct, uh, we don't work exclusively with special operations folks. So that's just our our target demographic. Um, uh-huh. Because you know my network, the network of my network, and a lot of the folks who've come in to help uh, come from those specialties and those backgrounds. Um, and a lot of times special operations veterans will just be quiet. Like I said, they'll, they'll wait 13 and a half years to report an injury. So it doesn't mean that these folks don't need help. It just means that they're not screaming from the rooftops for it, um, which is a suggest that everyone else is. Uh, but I think I, you, you take my meaning there. But yeah. a lot of the folks we have helped so far through Semper Gratty Project have been non-special operations uh, folks who, you know, just got to know us and, and you know, we sort of put them before the board um, and, you know, a, a an assessment that the board voted uh, to to dispense funds in their favor, and we've had some some great successes. Gotcha. Uh, and do you get any help from Department of Housing and Urban Development Secretary Marsha Fudge and Veterans Affairs Secretary Dennis McDonough, um, the co-chairs and vice chair of the, of the United States Interagency Council on Homelessness? Do they help at all? Not not at the moment, um, but we we are pursuing, like I said. Uh, grant opportunities uh, a lot of which are are sponsored by the federal government so we'll, we'll see how that goes okay and u.s military veterans have been heavily impacted by the opioid overdose crisis with drug overdose mortality rates increasing by 53 percent from 2010 to 2019 again last time i could get that um so there must be a contingency of getting them clean too in order to get them back to the workforce maybe not the ones you work with but military veterans in general well, that actually plays a little bit more in the special operations space um, than the homelessness uh, epidemic does, because with uh, the plethora of injuries, especially musculoskeletal wear and tear and things like that, uh, you'll wind up with a, a lot of special operations veterans pretty you know, loaded up uh, um, medicinally. Uh, and like you said, uh, that's the VA's, you know, sort of uh, default go-to response oh you've got back pain here you go there's a pile of opioids that should take Mm -hmm. care of it but what about my discs no don't worry about those the opioids will take care of it and uh you know there's a lot of frustration a lot of guys understand that that's what's going on but you know some help is better than no help uh to them um and that's again where semper gratty project is is trying to make some headway um and deliver actually you know accretive solutions and saying with some of the medical consultation you know, hey, this guy's lower back is is not, um, you know, going to resolve with opioids and some rest. You know, he might need a surgical intervention or he needs a whole bunch of physical therapy and the VA needs to recognize that more seriously and take those steps. So, um, okay, last question. Approximately 181,500 veterans are incarcerated in the United States, representing 8% of the prison and jail populations. 13% of currently incarcerated veterans served in the Afghan or Iraq conflict, and approximately 45,000 incarcerated veterans were exposed to combat during their war deployments. Surveys of post-9-11 veterans suggest that approximately one-third have exhibited non-job-related physical aggression and a further 11% engaged in severe or lethal violence. Are you um, working with anyone that's out of prison now looking to get back into the community? No, I I think that unfortunately some of the veterans that fall into that 
category in that realm. Um, you know, we've got some thoughts on how to how to prevent that uh, with the next tranche of veterans that return. Um, there's obviously, you know, some some adjustments uh, disorder that comes into play, but a lot of that goes back to the the mental health side, which is you know one of the the positives on how we're focused on mental health. It's understanding that when a veteran disengages from active service, um, they're going to continue to identify themselves as an Army Ranger or as a Marine Special Operations uh, uh, service member, and so, or whatever branch they came from. And the need there is to get them to sort of disengage from that identity, because when they're not putting that uniform on anymore, and when they're not sort of reporting for duty in the same capacity, uh, while they might have the skills and the capability and the, the intellect to go out and perform in the civilian world, they're still so galvanized in that identity. And it creates creates a, a massive conflict internally. And so that's when you see um, when someone fails to matriculate successfully back into society, and then they end up using drugs, they end up committing crimes, violent crimes, they end up in jail. Um, the, the, the duty of care there, I think, was a, a big swing and a miss, right? And obviously, we didn't know all that 10 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. But it's something that observationally we can drill down on now and say, uh, you know, understand the why. Understand why are there so many uh, in, in you know doing prison time um, or having have served jail time, and you know what can we do going forward uh, to to remedy it as best we can. Although it's not proactive anymore, perhaps there's still the opportunity to heal. Okay, well, Christian, thank you for your time. We very much appreciate you. We're at the end here, so tell everyone where they can go to find out more about you and the charity and your social media. And you, I know you team up with Red Balloon. If you can real quick, tell us about how that partnership is going. And I know you have fundraisers coming up this summer in Nashville and I think it's Dallas. So be sure to mention all that. <laughs> sure. Okay. I'll tell me if I forget anything here, but the okay. website, www.sempergradiproject.org. Um, you can, you can find, uh, you know, the basics there. Um, in terms of the upcoming fundraiser events, uh, we're still TBD on the dates, but one will be downtown Nashville. Uh, one will be in North Dallas, probably in August, maybe September. And, uh, and, and those should be really, really fun events. And then um, uh, in terms of the red balloon opportunity, um, that was a really, a really neat thing how that came about. But we realized that, um, you know, part of that identity thing sort of played into the the cultural alignment thing, right? So a lot of times veterans uh, get out and then they'll, you know, get that decent job afterwards and they just don't really fit, right? Um, but that really isn't as much a fault of the veteran as it is a, a shared uh, responsibility of the, the hiring company. And so there's a lot of companies that are veteran friendly and they'll say they're veteran friendly, especially when they get the tax breaks. Uh, but they aren't veteran ready. And so with Red Balloon, um, we have the opportunity to take a, a list or a, a job board full of um, civilian side companies who uh, have demonstrated that sort of, you know, cultural awareness and alignment um, with uh, a lot of the things that veterans value and hold dear. Um, and, and we can, provided as sort of a safe space for veterans to, you know, job hunt essentially uh, versus like you know, the more traditional Indeed 
or or monster career builder, uh, where it's just a big ambiguous mess of do you want to be an HVAC repairman or you know CEO of a franchise? Um, yeah. These or these are a Target lot more... or Budweiser, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to get fired for having an American flag at your desk during a Zoom meeting from one of these companies on Red Balloon. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks for coming on with us again, and and thank you for your service. Thanks for the support, Steve. I, I appreciate this opportunity. Uh, I appreciate everyone who's listening and, uh, and appreciate support for Semper Grady Projects. Will do. Harvey Durham Health Insurance Agency is the trusted independent health insurance agency that you can depend on for all your health insurance coverage needs. He's great because he doesn't look at health insurance as sales. He looks at it as helping people and doing the best he can to solve your current long-term care, disability, and Medicare supplement needs, even pets. I know I'm a client and so is my lab, Caroline. Over 30 years of insurance experience behind every policy, give Harvey a call at 731-727-9242 or email him at harveydurham at harveydurham.com and tell him Steve and Steve at Mill Creek View sent you. I don't understand how you ever did without me. I don't understand how I bring you down to your knees. Welcome to the Steve and Steve segment of our show where we cover what we just heard. Producer Steve, what do you think of our guests, Christian Irving and Semper Gratis, taking care of our veterans? I like the idea. We had a good little conversation off air. And I just want to say there is such a need for transitional help for veterans. And um, so I'm very glad for what he's doing. I'm glad you met him. Sounds like you have a little personal interaction with him. And so you thought it would be well worth our time to bring him on. And uh, we just, you know, hats off and salute to all those out there who are serving those who served us. So yeah, good, good interview. He's a tough little dude. And while he was stitching up my forehead, he had come in to stitch up his own hand because he picked up an eight foot snake to throw it away from the crowd that was gathered. Uh, and he said, I didn't think it would bite me. I did it yesterday and it didn't. So he thought <laughs> it knew him. So he's a, uh, he's a tough guy. Yeah. Uh, did you ever work for a company with a pension? You know, I probably did, but Steve, I didn't, I think the longest I ever worked for a company was three and a half years. Oh, okay. Well, we, you know, you're you're hard to handle. I'm sure they uh, they didn't want you around. No, just kidding. But uh, they used to be the rule. Pensions did. Uh, you worked your whole life and saved with a company, and they take care of you and your family for life because you took care of them during your hardworking years. Well, you know, now we have the 401k, which many people, especially young ones, don't participate in. Generally speaking, of course, uh, mostly I find because they need every cent they earn to live on especially in the Biden inflation generation and high rent. So no savings anyway. Um, in California, if you're a teacher, you don't have a choice. They take your union dues automatically and stick you in a system if you work for the government like teachers do. But unlike the old pension you could rely on because your company was strong, now you have to worry about who's managing those pension funds. So check this headline out. Outrageous pension double dipping triggers criminal investigation into California cops. A California public employee's retirement system 
Audit says three police chiefs and a police commander in a small community just outside of San Francisco defrauded the giant pension system for a decade, collecting retirement benefits while working full-time jobs. The alleged fraud detailed by CalPERS includes two chiefs working in the Broadmoor Police District after receiving disability payouts, covering up full-time work in order to collect retirement benefits, and in one of the chief's cases, returning to active duty, then becoming an annuitant again to enhance benefits. CalPERS said one pensioner, identified as former police chief David Perrenti, increased his yearly pension retirement by nearly $60,000 a year, going from $93,000 a year to $152,292 a year by coming out of retirement, working for 13 months, and then retiring again. Politicians' piggy banks, pensions are bad, but how about taxpayers' dollars that we also don't have a say in where the money is spent? So we get this story. Openthebooks.com, great website, Auditors quantified the improper and mistaken payments admitted to by the 17 largest federal agencies. It amounts to a staggering $2.9 trillion since 2004 when the totals are adjusted for inflation. Last year in 2022, improper and mistaken federal payments totaled $247 billion. That's about $2.5 billion per month. I'm sorry, that's about $20.5 billion per month, or more than $675 million every single day. What exactly is an improper payment? Federal law defines the term as payments made by the government to the wrong person in the wrong amount or for the wrong reason. In other words, a corner grocery store has better accounting controls than our $6.82 trillion U.S. federal government had in 2021. But the Department of Defense has their shit together, right? Life and death, war stuff, yeah. Pentagon says Ukraine accounting error revealed last month is much bigger than previously stated. The Pentagon announced that the accounting error revealed last month was significantly more than previously stated and aid provided to Ukraine was overvalued by $6.2 billion rather than $3 billion. The accounting error includes fiscal years 2022 and 2023, and occurred because in a significant number of cases, when the U.S. transferred weaponry, military officials counted the value of replacing the weapon instead of the value of the actual weapon. Deputy Pentagon Press Secretary Sabrina Singh explained at a news briefing, the final calculation of the accounting error is far higher than the Pentagon previously estimated in May when it first revealed the miscalculation as $3 billion. So happy about all that. It More re news. Reminds me of the uh, the line in uh, Sympathy for the Devil, all the cops are criminals. <laughs> Not all cops are, but boy, there are some that are criminals, Steve. There are some if you consider padding your pension a crime. Oh, yes. More news. Yep. The data is in. States post-Dobbs abortion bans are working. Sarah Weaver, Daily Caller, data indicates that abortions are plummeting in the wake of abortion bans that went into effect after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Between July 2022 and March 2023, 20, there were 24,290 fewer abortions than in the months previous. In states which restricted abortion, that number rose to 93,575 fewer abortions. Abortions in states where it remained mostly legal rose by 69,285. Planned Parenthood of Illinois announced in, in Illinois, Illinois announced in June that abortion increased by 54% since Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization. 
The clinic reported that almost a quarter of the abortions they administered came from out-of-state patients with women traveling to the clinic from 34 different states. Well, Planned Parenthood execs among highest earning in nonprofit sector pay new report finds. Average salary for CEOs at Planned Parenthood's affiliate was $317,000. Planned Parenthood executives are among the highest paid in the U.S. in the not-for-profit sector, surpassing the average salary for nonprofit CEOs, according to this new report. American Life League's STOPP, Stop International, an organization dedicated to serving as a watchdog on Planned Parenthood, recently released a report titled The Stop International 2023 Report on Planned Parenthood CEO Compensation, which offered analysis of how much money executives affiliated with the nonprofit are raking in. The abortion giant pulled down $1.9 billion in government grants and disbursements over the past three years and has more than $2.7 billion in assets, according to its most recent financial report. The report said Stop International's report also divulges the salaries of the leaders of all Planned Parenthood affiliates, as well as those of the top paid employees at its headquarters. The average salary for the CEOs at Planned Parenthood affiliate was $317,000, according to Planned Parenthood's most recent data, Brown said. The average salary for nonprofit CEOs in the U.S. is $184,809, according to Salary.com. The person we just listened to makes zero. I should mention Christian Irvine makes zero at his nonprofit. Stop International also observed in its report that the highest paid Planned Parenthood CEO was a white woman who made $616,923,000 in 2020. The second and third highest earners at Planned Parenthood were white men who pulled down $592,432 and $570,726. The report also noted that of all 53 Planned Parenthood affiliate CEOs, only seven were people of color, four black and three Hispanic. And the lowest paid among 53 affiliate CEOs was a black woman. Does Al Sharpton know this? Better call him. Al, 1-800-DON'T-CARE. Belarus prepares for chemical castration of pedophiles by Andulu Agency, Istanbul, June 19, 2023. Belarus is preparing to introduce amendments in the country's criminal code to chemically castrate convicted pedophiles. Yes. I apologize for this already. Anzelika Karkuk, spokesperson for the prosecutor general's office, said on Telegram that amendments to the country's criminal code have been prepared which stipulate that, along with punishment for a crime, a court verdict provides for, quote, compulsory treatment of persons suffering from pedophilia, end quote. That's right, it's a disease. The health ministry, Kirkok, said, has developed and approved a clinical protocol containing an algorithm for the treatment of pedophile, pedophilia, including the use of chemical crustacean. She said that the initiative from the prosecutor general's office has been supported by President Alexander Lakashenko. Okay. Next story. Coronavirus. Rand Paul, Bill Gates is largest funder of trying to find viruses in caves and bring them to big cities. This is up there with the danger of nuclear war, but this is much more insidious. Senator Rand Paul teed off on globalist Bill Gates Sunday, heavily intimidating, heavily in, in, uh, intimating that the bit, it's not easy to read this folks, that the billionaire's obsession with funding research into deadly viruses led directly to the COVID pandemic. Appearing on Fox News, Paul noted that Gates visited China last week. Let's hear from him. 
Look, Bill Gates has been over there recently. Bill Gates is the largest funder of trying to find these viruses in remote caves and bring them to big cities. So what happened in China is they went eight to 10 hours south of Wuhan, two to 300 feet deep into a, la into a cave, found viruses and took them back to a city of 15 million. There are many, many scientists who think that Bill Gates is wrong in funding this, that our government's wrong, that the Chinese government, that really we don't need to be searching for viruses that may never interact with man. And it's worse than that. They bring viruses that we may never interact with. They bring them back to the lab, but then they manipulate them by combining them with other viruses to create viruses that don't exist in nature. But this has largely been funded by Bill Gates. He, he funds the WHO more than most countries do. So there's a responsibility there. And I don't think he's not, I think he's well-intended, but I think he's inadvertently helped to create something that the biggest danger to mankind right now is something that he's been funding. And that is finding these viruses, taking them back to the lab and manipulating them to make them more dangerous. I think Bill Gates needs to be um, mentally castrated with chemicals. That's exactly why I tied this all in. But uh, Rand Paul said well-intentioned. Uh, Rand so Paul sure. is not really somebody that I really put a lot of trust in because he's just playing talking points. He sounds good, but there's no teeth whatsoever in his comments. Yeah, well, he's a junior senator from Kentucky. Mitch McConnell is the senior senator, so yep. he can say what he wants. He doesn't have any power. I've long said the coalition, the far left, was trying to get to unite and cobble together wasn't a natural constituency. Most religious refugees hate this stuff that we're talking about. For example, there's this. Christian Muslim parents unite to get groomers out of Alberta schools. We stand together as Canadian people, as a Muslim and a Christian, to protect our children, one man said in a video posted on Twitter by Rebel News. On Friday, hundreds of Christians and Muslims in Calgary came together at City Hall to protest the gender ideology being taught in schools, chanting, leave our kids alone. We stand together as a Canadian people, as a Muslim and a Christian to protect our children. Oh, I repeated that. Let's listen to it. Number two. It's never the leaders who are the most important people. It's always the first followers mm -hmm. because those first followers make it okay for other people Don't to come along. It. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. In Canada, the, this last week, we had the biggest protest against gender ideology in Canadian history, led by myself and a student a 17-year-old boy who got kicked out of his Catholic school because he stood up for some girls in his school who didn't want boys in their bathroom. And he refuses to yield with, to his scientific factual belief that there are two sexes. So he got kicked out of Catholic school. That's but he's bravery. leading a movement with students. And now the Muslims are getting involved. Christians were finally coming out. We had hundreds of people there. Whereas two years ago, I couldn't get two people to come out on the street. And we're seeing yeah. this all over North America now. And it's not going to stop. And with not going to stop. No, nope. amen. Last time we heard that was Camilla Harris about BLM riots, about not stopping. Now the forces of good are rising and the tables are turning. So finally, finally, we came to this country because we have freedom of choice. A Muslim man said we can practice our religion, deserve the right to protect us. We can be whatever we want to be. You can do whatever you want to do, but just leave our kids alone. Yes, sir. Next story, too many transgender activists are sadistic bullies by Deborah So, June 15th, 2023. If you've ever wondered why so many scientists have remained silent as gender ideology overtakes the universe, here's another example to contemplate. A new study was recently released on the subject of rapid onset gender dysphoria, or ROGD. ROGD refers to the epidemic of 
predominantly young women and teenage girls who transition to male or a so-called third gender often suddenly and without any previous history of gender problems. 26 states have banned therapeutic approaches that are not gender affirm affirmation, and an increasing number, including California and Minnesota, have become sanctuary states. The study discussed ROGD in boys, a lesser understood presentation. Girls tended to transition socially earlier than boys. Boys were more likely to receive hormonal intervention while skipping a social transition, in her opinion, of the writer of this article. This is because autogynephilia, sexual arousal at the thought of having a woman's body, is likely driving teenage boys' desire to transition, and male puberty has a latter onset than puberty in girls. As a result, adolescent males' motivation, being taboo in nature, leads transition to be less socially rewarding and more secretive than what's been observed in girls. These are the forbidden discussions that need to be had to help these young people. That's it for this week. Ugh, I've got so much more to tell you. I've got Starbucks going anti-woke. I've got evil things coming out of California, exposing Planned Parenthood, and so much more. But I squeaked in seven. Sorry, not four. I'll try to do better next week. We have uh, Dr. Ming Wang and Tennessee Congressman Andy Ogles on next week. So you won't want to miss those. Stay tuned for my final of the day. If you have a beloved horse that you love like a family member and it's on its last legs, you need to call Edward at Tennessee Horse Cremation. He's got the only custom trailer around and never has to drag a horse. He's compassionate and will help make a difficult situation a little bit easier. Call and ask questions anytime. He's available seven days a week. 931-300-2333. Serving Tennessee as well as portions of Kentucky, Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. TN horsecremation.com. Hey, you guys, this is Senator Ted Harvey, chairman of the committee to defeat the president. And I want to encourage you all to continue to watch, continue to listen to the Mill Creek View podcast. It's a great podcast, and you need to give them your support. Thanks. We don't need no education. Yeah, great band. Too bad their bassist and songwriter went crazy, but that's his problem, not ours. Welcome to my quotes for the day. But before I share, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to Mill Creek View Podcast. Just go to Rumble or Spotify and hit the subscribe button and follow us. While you're there, go ahead and leave a comment and look for the CEO special on YouTube. It's new. It's episode one out Monday. Producer Steve, did you serve? No, not in the United States Army or the military. Me either. I regret it. First job interview I ever had asked me why I didn't go into the military and I had no good answer. Uh, never even crossed my mind. Too bad. I certainly enjoyed the freedom they defended for me and us. Uh, here are the quotes. We sleep peacefully in our beds at night only because rough men stand ready to do violence on our behalf. George Orwell. The brave men living and dead who struggled here at Gettysburg have consecrated it 
far above our poor power to add or detract, the world will little note nor long remember what they say here, but in it can never forget what they did here. Abraham Lincoln. It takes a hero to be one of those men who goes into battle. Norman Schwarzkopf, winner of the Gulf War. Duty, honor, country. Those three hallowed words reverently dictate what you ought to be, what you can be, what you will be. General Douglas MacArthur. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Winston Churchill. That's it for this episode and week. I'll miss you over the weekend. I really hope you liked it. Thank you, Christian Irvine, for looking out for our veterans. The government sure isn't. Until next time, this is your host, Steve Abramowitz, Editor-in-Chief of mcview.us. Peace in our time. Any views or opinions represented on the podcast are personal and belong solely to the creator and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the creator may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.